0: I'm a skyscraper today, high up in the uh, altitudes of Manhattan, and I'm with Cindy Gallup, the marketing maven, Asian profiteur, and the Michael Bay of business. Cindy, it's great to meet you. Uh, You speak a lot about the fact that advertising is broken. Could you unpack that a little bit for me?
1: Well, um, I I speak a lot about the fact that um, I really want to help my industry, advertising, reinvent itself for the future which it is so appallingly bad at doing itself. And so unfortunately, um, the advertising industry has colluded massively in its own devaluation for for a very long time. Um, although the dynamics operating there are exactly the same as operate in any other business. It has not kept up with the pace of change, it's gotten complacent, um, and it absolutely has no idea what to do to redesign itself and reinvent itself in the future, so which is, it, is pretty much true of every industry the name.
0: So it's just an illusion that Mad Men is a retro show, it actually still reflects the inner structure of the advertising industry.
1: Um, depressingly, um, you know, what is striking about Mad Men is not as much um, what has changed but what hasn't. Right. So rampant sexism and sexual harassment and um, gender bias are as rife, unfortunately, in the industry today as they've ever been. Um, and uh, what is also um, unchanging is what is true not only of Madison Avenue, but of a lot of other industries, which is that at the top of the industry is a closed loop of white guys talking to white guys about other white guys. And that has not changed, and it's not changing as we speak, unfortunately. Which
0: is a disaster they're actually trying to market to Hispanic women or Chinese consumers? or Well,
1: to, well it's particularly a disaster because Women are the primary purchasers in every single product sector or the primary influencers of purchase in every single product sector, including sectors traditionally thought to be male. So, you know, just to give you one example, right now here in the U.S., and this has been the case for a number of years, actually, um, I think it's been the case for about um, four or five years, more women hold driver's licenses than men. So there are more women actually driving cars than men here in the U.S. In the all-important millennial new car buying market, which is all-important because, you know, that is the stage at which car market preferences are set for um, the, the rest of your life. And
0: they're not even sure whether they want to buy cars to start with.
1: But uh, um, <laughs> they, they, they are much less inclined to see a car as like a big grown-up state symbol than they used to be. Right. But nevertheless, 53% of all millennial new car buyers currently are women, the majority, yet who are the automotive manufacturers still targeting their product design, their dealerships, their CRM, and their communications at? So women buy, um, and this is critically important again in today's digital world, women share. So social media is simply a whole new methodology for us to do what we've been doing since the dawn of time, which is sharing the shit out of everything in a way that men don't. Right. Because we are the gossipers. We're the advocates, we're the recommenders, we're the chatters, we're the talkers. Well, Pinterest is a great example of that. Uh, Absolutely. And that's why I say to brands that think they're targeting men, talk to women. Because women will influence men more than men will influence other men. So um, it is extraordinary that in an industry whose primary target is female... Um, the vast majority of leadership ranks and the vast majority of creative departments are still dominated by men and dominated by white men.
0: Do you think swapping women in is, will solve the problem? Or, or it's, it's still so baked into these archetypes of the housewife and the, the, way we, the stereotypes of, of marketing communication?
1: Absolutely. Um, the moment you have a gender equal, if not ideally, because it's been the other way around for way too long, more female than male... Um, industry, um, and I'm saying this about every single industry, you will see dramatic beneficial change so I regularly say to companies if you want to do one thing to set your company on a more innovative disruptive path immediately it's extraordinarily easy, there is one thing you can do immediately, the moment you leave this room take a long hard look at your business identify every single area that is all male male dominated, change that just doing that one thing will instantly set your business on a more disruptive path because women challenge the status quo because we are never it. True innovation disruption is born out of diversity. Hmm. What drives innovation is, and by the way, everything I say about gender diversity also applies to diversity of race, ethnicity, sexuality, age. Diversity drives innovation because true disruption is born out of many different mindsets, perspectives, worldviews, insights, all coming together in constructive creative conflict to get to a far better place that none of us could have gotten to on our own. When you have a close group of white guys talking to white guys about other white guys, same old, same old, all the time. Hmm. So A, um, absolutely you know, change that, but B, um, change it as quickly as possible. And this is a point I make because I'm extremely frustrated with the very incremental pace of change. And the reason it's a good idea to change the numbers fast is because The moment you make leadership teams, boards, departments, work environments, conferences, events, gender equal, or again, ideally, more female than male, you instantly manage out a whole host of negative dynamics that will simply cease to exist. So for example, when you have a gender equal working environment, you manage out sexual harassment. Sexual harassment does not happen A, when there is not a male dominant environment that gives implicit bro-endorsement of behaving that way, and B, it doesn't happen when men are in an environment where they are engaging with as many women at an equal level in professional roles, because that stops them seeing women, as they do in male-dominated environments, in in one of only two roles, girlfriend or secretary. (laughs) And so, literally... Um, I say to companies do everything you can to to get the numbers up to generate quality as quickly as possible because then you won't have to worry about a whole host of other things like those sexual harassment lawsuits your HR department is incredibly busy covering up in every single industry including mine. The the other thing um, that that I I then say is in order to do that it's very important therefore um, that you bulk buy by which I mean hire groups not individuals don't go, oh, oh, we must go out and, and find a woman to sit on our board. Oh, we must go out and find an African-American to be somewhere in that department. Because, um, so, um, Harvard Business Review um, uh, published a study a few years ago of, a, of data-driven research that was conducted um, by um, a number of academics um, to answer the question, um, how many women what is the optimum number of women that you need on a board to make a difference to the business outcomes? Yes. So this study identified that one woman on a board, and when I say that, extrapolate that to one woman on a board, a leadership team, you know, a project team, one woman is useless. Tokenism is useless because the alien organism has to adapt to the culture around it. Mm. The woman becomes like the men. Mm. So no point. Um, Two women is still not enough and 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 this um, *Harper's* view article has an entertaining anecdote about the time when on a board with two women on it. One of the women in a board meeting made some very incisive, intelligent observation, and at the end of the meeting, the male chairman thanked the other woman for it because it looked so much like. So, two women. Okay, not enough. Um, the optimum number of women on boards is three or more, and
0: right. by the
1: way, again, extrapolate that to the optimum number of African-Americans, Hispanics, you know, diversity of ethnicity, because three or more people from a different group feel surrounded by their own kind. They feel supported. Um, they, They feel more confident. They feel able to say what they really think to express their opinions, which, by the way, is their value to the business organization. And boards with three or more women, both male and female directors, reported there was a better quality of discussion, better decision making and better business results and outcomes as a result of that.
0: Scandinavia is a classic example of a market where businesses operate like this. And, oh, well, well,
1: well, businesses operate like this because they haven't been mandated to do so. Right. So Scandinavian countries have a quota. And by the way, I'm all for that. I'm all in favor of affirmative action. Hmm. I regularly have women saying to me, oh, oh but you know, I don't want to be hired just because I'm a woman. And what I say to them is, get over it, because all around you <laughs> are mediocre men who got hired because they're the men. get hired because you're a woman and then prove by the brilliant job you do in that position how much you deserve that role but do not pass up the opportunity to get hired because you're a woman because every single day men get hired just because they're men
0: diversity would do a lot to transform marketing and business but it doesn't feel like it's enough like it's almost like putting a, a female or a different culture driver on the horse and carriage there's so much about the marketing model which also feels like outdated today
1: well but, but the thing is like actually um, diversity is the key to changing ads so I've just returned from Sydney where I gave the opening keynote at Mumbrella 360 which is Australia's biggest um, advertising and marketing conference and um, one of the points I made was, um, so uh, I talk about the fact, and again, that this is true for every industry as much as my own, that um, uh, you cannot do new world order business from an old world order place. Hmm. All companies are old world order places because their systems and processes and structures are born of a time when the process used to be linear. Right. So in my industry advertising, you know, the way it used to work once upon a time was, The very first thing you did was you shot that big TV commercial. Then you shot the matching print ads. Then you did everything else, including a fun thing called a website. Today, everything's changed, but the systems and process structures still haven't. And in fact- um, And the business models haven't. And and the business models haven't either, which is why I also talk about the need to redesign the way you make money. Hmm. In fact, um, I have a set piece that I do from the stage when I talk about this purely for effect, where I say to the audience, it doesn't actually matter how brilliant you think I, or any of the other speakers at this conference, are. It doesn't actually matter what inspirational thinking any of us spark in your brains. It doesn't actually matter what innovative, and disruptive ideas any of you have as a result of anything that any of us say to you from stage the stage today. If you go back to the office tomorrow morning and you plug all that brilliance, all that inspiration, all that innovation, disruption back into the same old world order systems and processes, you get the same old world order crap out the other end. Hmm. So, um, what I talked about to the audience at MLB 360 was um, that there is a huge benefit to inviting women into your leadership teams, management structures, boardrooms. And, and by the way, I was driving this message particularly home to the Australian ad industry, which is one of the most sexist in existence, because um, women are redesigning the way we do business, um, both, in, both in my industry and beyond. So I gave an example of... I mean, I've been saying for years that I wish that we had many, many more women starting up and marketing agencies. The trouble is that when you have a male-dominated industry and you sack women's confidence as a result because you cannot be what you cannot see, if all you see are rows of white guys starting agencies, you don't feel, you don't have the confidence to even think you could survive in the marketplace. Fortunately, that is changing. And so I gave the, I gave three examples of female-founded agencies that are redesigning the way they do business and the way they make money. Hmm. And, and unfortunately, you know, I was doing this as part of, I mean, I said to the audience at the start of my talk, every single point I'm going to make today is an entire presentation itself. And, and so I said, I'm going to have to kind of skate through this, and so I'm going to just pull out, with each of these agencies, one salient point about their business practice and their philosophy to talk about, but but there's a whole lot more if you want to dig into them. Um, And and I highlighted them on the slides with their Twitter handles, because I said I want all of you to tweet the shit out of these, because the world needs to know about them. So, um, agency number one is called Joan Creative, and it literally started two weeks ago. It was started by Jamie Robinson um, and Lisa Clooney, who are um, female creative directors. Um, Jamie's from the more traditional advertising background, Lisa Clooney is, is from the digital advertising background. And, um, and they picked the name Joan, because there have been many famous Jones in history, you know, Joan of Arc, it's, it's, it's a sort of no-nonsense, um, you know, heroic name. And the, the linchpin of how they plan to work um, is what they call co-development. So they plan to collaborate with clients to co-develop communications and marketing programs. Um, but in a truly collaborative way, um, and, and in fact, I pulled out a quote um, um, from Lisa, from, from their um, startup announcement, um, which said, she said, it breaks my heart when when clients say, um, um, I know I'm only the client, but, but I've got this idea. She said, you know, nobody has creative authority over everyone else, nobody's holding the creative conch here. You know, we're all creative. And so unlike um, more traditional agencies, where the white male creative directors often despise clients' input, she and Jamie are designing Joan Creative around a co-development process every single step of the way. That means collaboratively they come up with the ideas and the campaigns together. The second agency I talked about is called um, Wolf and Willemine, and it's started by Heidi Hackmer, um, who actually began uh, Wolf and Willamine a couple of years ago. And Wolf and Wilhelmine is a strategic planning agency that um, Heidi comes from the planning split, And again, Heidi's put a huge amount of thought into designing the kind of place that she wanted to work. But um, I, I, I pulled out um, a specific um, aspect of Wolf and Wilhelmine, which is that Heidi and um, uh, her, her fellow teammates believe that people do their best work and their most creative work when they are not exhausted, stressed, pressurised, overworked. So Wolf and Wilhelmine has a set of rules around, you know, when you're not allowed to work. So, um, you are not allowed to email anybody about work um, after seven o'clock on weekdays and on Saturdays. The
0: French would agree with her it, on this.
1: Uh, the, uh, uh, the French have a whole different set of issues driven by legislation. So that's, and, and being that's, French. Uh, and being French, but um, <laughs> but but being French, they've legislated for themselves to be French. Yeah, that's Christmas. right. So that, that's a whole different <laughs> um, uh You you um, if you do not take your full vacation compliment, um, you um, you don't get your bonus. Um, you, um, at the start of every week, um, every Monday, the entire agency sits down, they go through everybody's individual workload, and if anybody feels that a 40-hour working week is not enough to get through their work, they, they, they call in freelancers, they redistribute the workload amongst people to make sure that nobody is overloaded. Okay, fan-bloody-tastic. And then the third example was one that I was able to speak to very specifically because I've literally just come out of this process myself. So in Brazil, um, in Sao Paulo, a wonderful woman called Barbara Solero started a couple of years ago an agency called Mesa e Cadeira, which is Portuguese for tables and sh- table and chairs. And what, what Mesa e Cadeira do is they work with brands. The brand gives them their business problem, whatever it is. Mesa and Kidera then convene what they call a Mesa. Um, they convene a table full of people. They put somebody very compelling at the head of the table, and quite often with a brand, it'll be, you know, the brand director or, or, or the senior client person, or whatever. They then put a call out for applications to work with this person and this brand on this Mesa, and without telling them what they're going to be doing, by the way. People pay to do this. People pay to participate in Mesa's. And can it be anybody? that can, can, can be anybody. You can apply from any discipline. Um, the, um, the, the Mesa team then curates and filters to make sure they bring together the right combination of people. But you can apply from, you can be a film director, a musician, an advertising agency creative, a designer, a coder, whatever. Right. Um, they come together. They then work together collaboratively on a six-day process. Um, they're given the mission, which is the brand's business you know, requirement, and then the emphasis is on doing and making. Mesa's tagline is, we believe in doing. And so what they do is they prototype and they produce stuff that makes business happen for the brand. As opposed to and,
0: making a presentation. Um,
1: yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> and so and so, I've had the opportunity to experience this firsthand hmm. because um, I just came back from Sao Paulo a couple of weeks ago. Um, twice a year, um, Mesa do um, do this pro bono for causes they believe in, and um, because a friend of mine who used to work for Can Lions um, now works with Mesa, she called me up and she said, you know, Cindy, we'd like to invite you to take the head of the table, do a Mesa, and we'd like that Mesa to produce anything you wanted to for Make Love Not Porn. And I went, I'm in. okay. Um, so they paid to fly me and my community manager curator Sarah Beale over to Sao Paulo they paid to put us up in an Airbnb for six days they put the call out for Mesa Cindy as they called it um, it, it was gratifyingly one of the most oversubscribed mesas that they've ever put the call out for. I mean, there are a lot of people who applied I can only to imagine. do this, um, <laughs> and the ones that, who didn't get chosen were very disappointed. I mean, they've turned being picked for a mesa into a status symbol. in, in and what in, in, kinds so, of people turned and, up. Uh, so, um, so it was the most uh, wonderful collection of sixteen people, um, eleven women, five men, my kind of ratio. Um, who were drawn from, you know, the, um, there was um, a film director, in fact the film director had just finished shooting a documentary uh, uh, with Marina Abramovich, um, a programmer, a designer, an advertising agency creative, a musician, a TV producer, you, you know, it, it was a whole range of... of Sounds different. like a Robert Altman um, film. It was, it, it was <laughs> absolutely fantastic. So, so all, all these people knew um, was that they were going to be working with me on a project. They had no idea what it was. And I was mildly trepidatious because, you know, the mission was, how can we make Make Love Not Porn take off across Brazil um, by prototyping things that will disrupt the conversation around sex in Brazilian culture and society? And, you know, I fully thought, oh my God, you know, somebody might go, I'm not doing this and walk out immediately. Nobody did. Everybody got it. Everybody opened up about their own personal experiences related to the fact that we don't talk about sex in the real world, which is why, you know, porn has become sex education by default. Um, we worked together collaboratively. And, and by the way, these are all people who have full-time jobs. Okay, mm. so, um, so the Mesa happens each evening. So these people worked a full-time day, and then at 7 o'clock in the evening, they turned up to work through the night with us. Um, two of them had actually flown from Rio to take part in this. So they actually lived and worked in Rio.
0: And it's like a dinner party strategy session.
1: Um, 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 But but with the emphasis on making and producing. So what we produced in the course of six days was we produced the Make Love Not Porn Real World 6 emoji keyboard um, so that people can communicate using emojis about, about, about sex in the real world. Um, at the moment, people use common emojis, which is why you see things like the eggplant and the... you know, Yes, the, yeah. they've, appropri- that's, that's, they've appropriated... Yeah, no, but, 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 but there is no communication that enables you to talk naturally and openly about yes. real-world sex. So, so, so together as a team, we designed and produced an entire set of real-world sex emojis. Um, we produced a download-your-own party kit to have parties that are designed to help people talk openly about sex. And so the team flipped the script on, you know cocktails are called things like Sex on the Beach, Screaming Orgasm. So they created a bunch of cocktail recipes with names that were about sexual values to prompt conversation. You could download coasters with the emojis on. You could download, you know, um, a set of party games. So so it's hold your own, let's talk about sex party. Um, They um, told us and, and this is true in English, um, but it's way more true in portuguese and brazilian so they said in brazil we never talk about sex okay we're catholic we're, but actually we talk about sex all the time every day because we use sexual metaphors in our language in non-sexual contexts so the equivalent in english would be you know you go i got fucked in a business deal or whatever you know. Um, and they said literally uh, and they went through a whole range of these phrases and I was gobsmacked I mean we have a few in English but I had no idea they had this many in Portuguese and they said every day you know uh, (laughs) men, women, grandmothers use these terms um, and they're actually really so so they flipped the script It's like
0: linguistic repression Oh yeah,
1: yeah, exactly (laughs) and so they flipped the script and so they created a set of posters that said things like you know, I got fucked and I really enjoyed it. You know, I took it up the ass and I filmed and posted it on Make Love Porn. You know, you know, flipping it to go they're, they're talk about sex in the real world. And and they also they wrote a song. They wrote a song whose title was Sexo na Real, which is Get Real About Sex in Portuguese. Um, they arranged it with a very well-known music producer they filmed us all and, and they cut together a, video, a music video that has all of us dancing and then and then, the end of the Mesa, um, at the end of the six days, there was always some kind of launch event which again the team designs where they unveil you know the the products that they've created and so um, our launch event was we threw a party in a strip club in the red light district in sao paulo which we took over cleaned up put all our posters all our emojis all over it the team went out in the streets of sao paulo that afternoon and they pasted these posters up all around sao paulo Um, and then at the party we you know unveiled the music video the song we all danced to the song we had the emoji and and it was absolutely fantastic so um that is an agency, an agency process designed by a woman. And that is the opportunity to revolutionize the way the advertising industry and other industries do business as a whole.
0: But you know, do you think these similar models of creativity and innovation led by, led by women can actually be replicated in the corporate world? Because I, I often see agencies are, you know, like these wonderful experimental places where you can trial pla- environments that allow people to be creative. But one of the reasons why corporate hire agencies is because they can fantasize about these other ways of work before they go back to their dull, boring offices.
1: So my first response is, have you actually walked into Omnicom or WPP? Well, or you're this? right.
0: They've, they've actually become corporate.
1: Yeah. OK, but
0: this is actually true because yeah. it's a question of scale. When you're 10 people mm. and you're a bunch of smart, creative people, you can do that. But when you get 100, you know the bean counters moving.
1: So so, um, let me answer a question in two parts because uh, the second part will respond to that. I get asked this question all the time. Um, The first part is the corporate world absolutely has to do this because the entire corporate world the entire corporate structure as we know it was built up and designed and predicated on the concept of the housewife. So the entire corporate world designed itself around the belief back then that it would always be men going to work and there would always be a woman at home taking care of everything else. Hmm. That is no longer true, but the systems and process structures remain the same. That is why I say to men, men, we live in a world where the default setting is always male. Men, you have no idea how much happier you would be living and working in a world, in a working environment that was 50-50 equally informed, influenced, designed, led and driven by women as well as men.
0: You don't think women would have invented cubicles?
1: uh, No, I don't actually. No, um, no. Um, I mean, uh, 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 one of the things I like to emphasize is that Feminine and masculine values not the sole province by the gender. Okay, but feminine values are essential to working processes today Whether they are inherent within men or women Hmm. and and feminine values are about collaboration community consensus building Um, The three agencies I've just described to you are all about that And when you have that you don't need walled-off cubicles, and you don't need status symbols along the lines of my dick's bigger than yours I've got the corner office Okay. So, but um, my point being that when you have a gender equally designed corporate world, men benefit enormously just as much as women. Hmm. Now, I am regularly asked. Um, to, well, I'm regularly asked two questions when I speak. The first is, <coughs> Cindy, who is currently doing everything you talk about? And for many years, the answer was nobody. Um, and, and now I can start pointing to female-founded companies that are hmm. starting to do some I'm talking about. But but the question that then always, always follows on that, um, is, I, 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 I'm actually there is there is another question in between these two because the other second question goes, what will it take to make people do what you're talking about? And I go only one thing: complete, total, utter fucking disaster. Right. Because the old order will not change until it's absolutely forced to. But so the third question, to your point, is. You know, I'll have somebody, I mean, for example, I had a man who asked this question who they'll say something along the lines of, I'm a cog in a machine. You know, I had a man who said, I work for IBM. How do I change, you know, in the way that you're talking about? And so um, my philosophy, and everything I talk about, by the way, is born out of my life glosses. So my philosophy is that change happens from the bottom up, not the top down, and change happens through micro actions. Hmm. Micro-actions are small, simple, easy-to-do actions, so easy to do well when you do it. The point being that every single one of us, every single day undertaking micro-actions for change, cumulatively adds up at scale to colossal impact. So my recommendation is always start with micro-action. By which I mean in a corporate context, start with a bite-sized chunk of something. Find a very small project, or, or something you can carve off of a project to be its own thing and redesign the way you do that because it's small enough that you can do that. Leaders yeah.
0: struggle with that because they're like grand gestures. Sorry? Leaders struggle but, with but, that.
1: But, 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 but I'm talking here to the people like the man from IBM who is not the leader. Right. Um, the, the CEO loves a grand gesture. I'm saying that the people who operate about 12 layers down in the corporate structure but about to six layers up from what you would call the bottom, say to me, how do we affect the change you're right. talking about? So
0: there is okay. stuff they so, can do.
1: You know, yeah, no, absolutely. And so, so the point being, find a very small project, carve a chunk of a project, and design the way you do it differently, and implement that. Mm. Because, because at that scale, as a, as a micro project, you can do that without having to get it signed off by anybody. Okay. Mm. The, the, the key thing being, redesign the way you do it, um, and put it out there, implement it, so that you have traction, you have proof of concept in the marketplace, because the moment you can point to it and go, Look, we did this here, these are the results, why don't we expel that out to here? And then, blah, 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 and, and, and you can absolutely get to the big change you want that way.
0: But let's talk a little bit about what you alluded to about the middle question about crisis. Mm. I mean, if you need a revolution to bring the old world down, mm. do you think that companies that face huge crises should see this as an opportunity to absolutely. actually completely redesign yep. themselves? Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, Absolutely. Um, for uh, for two key reasons. And, you know, I, I mean, in this context, I talk about the huge missed opportunity that BP had, for example. Right. So, um, so, um, so the first reason is...
0: you think BP should have blamed it on men?
1: No, no, um, no, no, BP had a huge opportunity with the Deepwater Horizon oil spill to completely blow it up and start again. If, you, if you were if of- you were
0: running BP after the oil spill, you've moved in and, and they said, "Let Cindy Gallup fix it." What would you have done?
1: Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you in a moment. Okay. So, so you, <laughs> let me answer a question first. Um, the first point I wanted to make um, to a question about you know is there opportunity in disaster is many research studies have shown. Um, uh, and, and, and these come out of my industry, you know, again, again brand building, um, huh. marketing. That um, when a consumer audience, wherever well it is, um, have a really bad experience with a brand, you know, some massive consumer disappointment or failing or whatever, and when the brand then completely delights the consumer in the way it addresses that problem, that failing, that service breakdown. The consumer's opinion of the brand is far higher going forwards than if nothing had ever happened at all. Okay? So, whenever a huge disaster strikes, and by the way, this is a truth in life as much as business, um, in the way you respond to that, you can completely turn things around for yourself. Hmm. Because if you are seen to respond to it in a way that elicits enormous respect, admiration, even potentially liking. You have just repositioned yourself at a whole other beneficial level going forwards. Okay, that's opportunity number one. Opportunity number two is, um, you you know, the reason to um, look positively on disaster is because it can throw up opportunities to reinvent yourself and address yourself in ways that Decades of corporate leadership, corporate boards, and doing things the way they've always been done have never afforded you. So, segueing from that into BP, Um, the really interesting thing about that disaster was that the entire world rallied in horror to want to address it. So, what happened was, um, groups of people all around the world came up with potential solutions. Hmm. And those groups of people ranged from... You know, um, think tanks to ordinary people, you know, to um, colleges. To... What BP should have done was they should have gone, this is absolutely the, you know, three alarm fire that says we can no longer do business the way we've been doing it. And, and by the way, um, Clay Shirky has a fantastic quote where he says, institutions have a vested interest in perpetuating the problems which they are the solution. <laughs> that, that is the old world order stranglehold every company is caught in. Okay. Yeah, it's
0: the so, a- a- ancient regime.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, so there was a huge opportunity for a wake-up call to go, uh, and, actu- and also to go by the way, and actually it's very good this is happening because you know our fossil fuel based business model only has so long to run, and we have to completely rethink how we go forwards as, as, a, as a company if we want to carry on making the huge amounts of money we've always been used to making. So, um, what I would advise BP to do um, is the complete opposite of what they actually did, because what they actually did was they did the old world order thing of they closed ranks, they went inside, they didn't speak to anybody, they didn't, you know, they, they, they fielded the lawyers, the crisis communicate, they shouldn't have closed, closed ranks, they should have opened up. They should have opened up, they should have fessed up, they should have gone you're right, we completely fucked up, and now world, we need your help and we welcome it. We welcome solutions, bring them to us, we will crowdsource, we are not too proud to say we now need all the ideas we can bloody well get to get us out of this, and in the course of doing that, we uh, we welcome the people, bring them to us, um, those are the BP employees of the future. We want you to help redesign this corporation for a future that we will all find a great deal more sustainable than this complete fucking hideous mess in front of us that, that that is an absolute indication of why the game is over for big oil.
0: Cindy, you're an inspiration. You're a force of nature. It's been wonderful having you on the show. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you for having me on your show.
0: You've been listening to Between Worlds, For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.